0: All right, everybody, welcome to the show, Crystal Kyle and friends. Today, we're gonna to be talking to Rana Faruhar, who is uh, an expert in what I would call Crystal's favorite topic, which is, <laughs> is the era of neoliberalism coming to an end? And what comes next? Or are we right smack dab in the middle of it? <laughs> this is a debate you've seen us have about 17,000 times, but now we have an expert who we brought in who uh, wrote a phenomenal book. I know you're a very big fan of the book. Yeah, um, the
1: book is called Homecoming. Uh, Rana is a columnist. She's actually associate editor at the Financial Times and a global business columnist. She's like sort of a labor, kind of mainstream labor Democrat, I guess is how I'd describe her. So our politics are probably a little to the left of hers, but um, she is— deeply knowledgeable about uh, the world economy. She's been a critic of U.S. trade policy, um, very pro-union. And I read uh, another one of her books, Makers and Takers, which talks about the incredible financialization in our economy and how so much of our economy is just like fake Wall Street engineering, which was also a really important book. This one takes an optimistic look at both the Biden administration's policies and how this could portend a new transition away from like, Uh, market fundamentalism and unfettered globalism towards a little bit more sort of localism uh, in a positive way. We'll see. Balance between corporations and national interests.
0: We're going to see if she can convince me because, you know, I'm the skeptic on this question. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we'll see. We'll see if she can do that. But before we get to that, um, so there's a couple things we want to talk about. Let's start with so we have news on. What's going on with Trump? Somebody may have flipped on him that could actually make a big, big difference. So go ahead.
1: Okay. So this is the Wall Street Journal, I think had this report first. Uh, Trump aide, and this is Kash Patel, who's like his close, close buddy now. He's like risen through the ranks and is at the moment, I think one of the Trump's top people. He's been granted immunity and is set to testify at a grand jury probing Mar-a-Lago documents. The subhead here is Cash Patel, who has said Trump declassified documents as president, previously declined to testify, citing right against self-incrimination. So basically what happened here, I don't know, this is all has to do with the Mar-a-Lago classified documents situation. So even before the news Came out even before the FBI raids Mar a Lago. Cash Patel had been out there saying, like, basically, I saw Trump declassify all of these documents. He's one of the people who've been pushing the theory of, like, you know, a president can just, like, wave his hand or even think the thought in his head and the documents are already automatically declassified. He has um, stated that he personally witnessed Trump declassifying these documents. So he's really sort of central to the Trump defense. Now, Ultimately, the provisions that Trump could be indicted under don't necessarily require that the documents are classified for it to be a problem, for it to lead to an indictment. But the government would probably prefer that the documents still be classified because that just makes for a stronger case and much less complex. The first time they tried to get this dude Cash Patel to testify, he just kept pleading the fifth. They tried to uh, get the judge to compel his testimony, saying like he's not a subject of the investigation, so he can't incriminate himself. Judge didn't buy that argument. So now what they've done is they've granted him immunity to say like anything that you use here, we're not going to use it against you for a future indictment. So now you have no ability to assert your Fifth Amendment rights. So he's testifying before a grand jury. He's the central figure. That's what's going on.
0: So let me ask you. So is the idea that the DOJ or the FBI, they have something on Cash Patel where he could go down theoretically and they made that clear to him. And then they said a characteristic type thing where it's like, look, we're going to go after you, you're going to go down or you could testify against Donald Trump, in which case you'll have immunity and nothing bad's going to happen to you, bro. Is that what happened here?
1: Potentially. Or, I mean, I don't know that it necessarily required his cooperation. I think it could have been that they just, you know, are doing this through a legal process of, like, we are granting him immunity, and now he can't assert his Fifth Amendment right. So he he has to answer the questions in front of the grand jury.
0: Okay, so now here's the problem with this story, and you know, because when we first read the headline, you brought it up to me, and I was, like, indignant that it's, like, not true, mm-hmm. right? And the reason I say that is because I'm very fami- familiar with this guy. Yeah, And he's one of the biggest Trump sycophants uh, I've absolutely. ever seen. Yeah, he's such—he's a massive Trump ball coddler. He, and he's, by the way, all in QAnon. Like he's, he's as deep in that world as you can get. He's as deep in that world as the dude who just tried to kill Paul Pelosi, right? Like he's totally brainwashed city, right? So I find it hard to believe that this is gonna be a guy who actually brings down Trump. I, I feel like he's with it, him.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things to say about that. Um, first of all, I mean, he now has to worry about his own uh, legal sort of exposure if he lies to a grand jury. So he has to answer the questions. He can't plead the fifth this time. So that's one thing. The other thing is just this is being taken as a sign that they are probably very close to indicting Trump. And there was another article, I think, in The Hill about how top Republicans are preparing for the likelihood that after the midterm elections, probably 30, 60, 90 days following those midterms, the Justice Department is likely to indict Trump. So I think the thing you can really say very clearly about this is it probably means they're pretty far along the process that they're very serious about it, that they would go to these lengths to secure his testimony. And, you know, the very likely path here is that Trump ends up indicted.
0: So now I agree with that, but then are we ultimately looking at jail time for him? For Trump? Yeah. Because I that's, mean, that's why it's worth doing, right? Right. Like if you do anything short of that, it just it riles up his base even more, gets them more violent.
1: I mean, the charges that they contemplated do include potential prison time. So right. it's possible.
0: Now, he also, by the way, sued the attorney general of New York, Letitia James, right. who is the person who's doing a civil lawsuit into Trump's businesses and his kids and him. And uh, I mean, I watched that press conference and covered it and it was fucking devastating. Like it was so many sp- very specific claims of here's this crime that you committed. here exactly how it worked. Here's this crime that you committed. Here's how that worked. And so Trump is counter suing her, but doing it in the Florida court, which is like what? <laughs> it's it's very it's very clear. My point is, guys, it's very clearly super duper desperate. Mm-hmm. Where he's tra- he's like uh, you know trying to do the classic Trump thing of like go on the offense, fight back, but there it, there's like he's running out of sh- tricks, right? Do you
1: think that if he was put in prison, which is like major hypothetical, does Merrick Garland have the balls to tr- to indict him? What happens to the trial? All that stuff. But if he did end up in prison, you think he'd still run for president? No. You
0: don't think so? No. Why? because you get embarrassed. You'd get embarrassed. He ain't fucking winning no Republican primary from a prison cell, Crystal. I don't agree with he's you. Not, I don't agree with you. Outside. You guys hear this? <laughs> you guys agree. hear this?
1: Did you see DeSantis is already like bitching out on even running against I him? I saw
0: a headline that some Republican insiders are saying like, oh, maybe he's, uh. but if Trump's in prison, DeSantis cakewalk. Well, actually that's not true. There might be some other Republican I who were to topple him, but I don't know. Crystal's not gonna be Trump if agree. he's in a prison cell. It's not I gonna agree. happen. It's funny because, like, <laughs> I am i feel like generally I'm tougher on Republicans than you are. But well, on this question, I'm actually to, more like the Republicans no, will get their shit together a little bit and not be pro-Trump. You, pro you Trump. have to
1: see, like, I mean, after the raid on Mar-a-Lago— His support went up with the Republican base. But now it's down. They see this all as a witch hunt. But now it's down. They see this all as unjust. They see him as unfairly persecuted. So if he ends up in prison, it could just further strengthen that view of like, this is our guy and we got to have his back.
0: The polls for Trump now, are they up, down, or the same since right after that Mar-a-Lago raid happened?
1: I have no idea. They're down. Down to where, though? Are
0: we really going to look this up mid-show here? Fine. Okay. Trump approval rating, GOP. This, uh, this I don't think this is GOP. I think this is general approval rating. 34%. General approval rating. I'm sorry. That's job approval rating. So that, that was when he was leaving office. I apologize. That's a All Gallup right. poll. That's Let's Gallup see. Poll.
1: Trump versus DeSantis poll.
0: No, do just do Trump's approval because that's what we were arguing over. I wasn't saying anything about DeSantis well, in that s- conversation. Yes, you are. because If Trump's saying, in prison, I'm saying he'll win the nomination. That's totally saying, different than looking up the approval right now between the two.
1: No, but you're saying that he would win in the prime in a primary. If
0: Trump's in prison.
1: Right. That's, so, what, but, there's, that's a big yeah, caveat. But, yeah, <laughs> but I'm making the case that the more they like go against him, the more they go after him, the more popular he is with the Republican base.
0: If he's in prison, nobody has to go after him. He's in fucking prison.
1: Why do you, I don't understand why you think that would be a deal killer for the Republican base when everything else hasn't been.
0: Because he's in prison. He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. He can't go give a rally. He can't fucking tweet on shitty truth social Don Twitter knockoff. will off. go out for him. Crystal, are we really being this silly now? No. See, this is like the Teflon Don theory taken to the most extreme extent possible.
1: Listen, I just think this man has a lock on the Republican base. This is his party. The Wrong. whole party revolves around your loyalty to this one dude. That's the entirety of the Republican Party now. Wrong. So do I think it would be like totally game over if he was in prison and there's no way he could win a Republican primary? Would he lose in the general election? Yes. Could he win a Republican primary? <laughs> Thank you for primary? that nice concession. <laughs> could Correct, he win he in a Republican just- primary? <coughs> I do not put that on No fucking
0: table. way. What percentage of Republicans who are running for office in this election cycle have openly denied or questioned the election? 50 some percent, 53 Mm percent, which means it's almost a full half of the Republican Party that has not go down that road. And he's he's not in prison now. If he goes in prison, it's game, set, match. Ultimately, look, I have many criticisms of Americans. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, (laughs) when push comes to shove, Americans can realize, shit, where there's smoke, there's fucking fire. And if somebody is locked up, hmm we have a very anti-criminal thing in this country. We're very we're very tough then why, on issues like that.
1: Then, why, then you have to explain why when the FBI raids his home, his approval goes up.
0: No, I don't have to explain that. It's, it's partisanship. It's just rank partisanship. Yeah,
1: well, that's exactly what I'm saying. So if your theory held that Republicans, ultimately it's law and order, ultimately like they believe the cr- in the criminal justice system and where there's smoke, there's fire, then when the FBI raids your home, then your support goes down. That didn't happen. It no, went up.
0: But now it I think it's up. gone down. But now I think it's gone down. And I said, in the long run, this is what's going to happen. In the long run, it's going to go down. Look, it, the game is over if he gets behind bars. Homeboy's like two and a half minutes from a heart attack induced by Big Macs. It's <sighs> over if he go, gets behind bars. I just, I'm telling you. I'm just much less certain about that. Fact. I would love to do a poll on this. Is Would Trump win the nomination from, from prison? behind bars. From prison. I'm a hard no on that. Just... Game, set, match, game, set, match, done, done, done. The question is, will he actually end up there and will Merrick Garland have the balls to go after him? Now here's what I do think would happen. If Trump, let's say he's indicted, he's convicted, he's Mm -hmm. found guilty of whatever the charge may be and he gets five years in jail or whatever the fuck, right? Mm -hmm. In that situation, I think we would see phenomenal civil unrest because I do think Trump would flat out say or go just short of saying like, it's time to take to the streets and show everybody that we mean business. And then you would have some small percentage of the population. They're the most hardcore Trump sycophants who are also mentally off and violent. I do think you'd see attacks on whatever FBI buildings, um, fill in the blank with whatever thing they associate, Democratic, DNC headquarters, whatever the fuck. Like I think there would be actual violent attacks in an instance like that. But I also think that shit would get quelled and they would eventually go home with their tail between their legs and Trump would be basically done.
1: What percent of the Republican base believes in the election lies?
0: Um, it's definitely a majority because um, there's different categories, right? It's like you think the election is stolen. That's one. Another one is like you question whether or not it's stolen still. 70
1: um, percent in June, in June, 70 percent say they don't think. Biden is the legitimate winner of the 2020 election.
0: Correct, but 70%. now also when you ask those people, um like, do you think Trump should keep bringing up the last election? Yeah, they want to like move on. like 13% said yes. Right. So, so there's there's more but, nuance in that. But saying, yeah, they're like, that's they're going to
1: buy whatever his narrative of why he ended up no, prison but crystal, in, and they're going to believe it.
0: You can have those feelings and believe it, but then also be like, he's in prison. What am I going to do? <laughs> like that's it. That's a thing. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I mean, look, I hope we find out because I hope he does end up in prison. You know what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> and then try to run out. Oh, boy. Anything could happen.
0: All right. Well, now let, let's move on to the next story. Was there any other part of it that we needed to bring up? No, I, that's, everything. On anything? Okay, that's, that's everything. Okay, that's everything. That turned into a phenomenal debate, by the way. Anyway. <laughs> all right. So um, now there's a story. Let me give you my whole fuck the media rant, okay? Because this is like just... Fuck the media 101 to me. This is why I hate them. This mm-hmm. is why they're miserable. They're miserable, they're useless. So I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen the stories, right? Cause it's, oh, sexy headlines, really serious issue. Uh, there's like sweet tarts that are actually just pure fentanyl, bro. We see that happening all around the country, bro. Look, we got, we took a picture. We did a drug seizure. Fentanyl, look at it, look. It was sweet tarts. There were some others, other various candies that they were like, be careful with your kids this year. There's a lot of fentanyl candy floating around now there were 1,542 news stories about, quote, rainbow fentanyl. Oh my God. In the two months before Halloween, okay? 1,542. Would you like to guess what happened after Halloween?
1: Mm, no rainbow fentanyl, it turns out.
0: <laughs> Zero, bupkis, nada, zilch, zip, nothing. Not a single kid in America got... Rainbow Fentanyl got candy Fentanyl. Now, why is this the case? Guys, if you stop and think about it for three seconds, you don't even need to fact check. You just need to use logic. Why were there like sweet tart Fentanyl things coming in the country? Because drug smugglers are trying to get the drugs in the country without them getting caught. Right. So it's, let's disguise it as something legitimate. And then when you get into the country, you turn around and sell it for a profit to drug users. You don't, Give it away for free to children. Yeah, I
1: fu- mean that's not part of the drug cartel uh, business model? No. Just giving it randomly away no. in Halloween baskets to five-year-olds? Free
0: fentanyl for toddlers is not part of the fucking drug law. I know, crazy. <laughs> now, look, everything I just said to you is totally, totally uncontroversial. I'm just basically explaining the nature of how this stuff works. I'm a moron. You're telling me the thousands of reporters that were involved in stories like this None of them could figure that out. None of them could figure that out. None of them were able to put two and two together in that very simple way and say, I don't know, this seems like hy- hysteria. This seems like mania but based like, on nothing.
1: They, the thing that really gets me is there's been like the fentanyl thing. It's like a new twist on it, but there has been some version of this Halloween candy panic. Forever. My entire life. Forever. Oh,
0: there's going to be a <laughs> razor like, blade, and Razor blades, blades in, razor blades in your candy, in bro. in them this
1: year. They're, whatever. Like, has it ever actually born out? Has this ever, like, really turned into some Halloween scourge? Uh, Not to my knowledge. So, yeah, this was just, like, the modern twist on the same shit they pull every single fucking Halloween.
0: Now, let me give you something that I haven't stopped thinking about since I read the article. Okay. There's a story that I covered on my show. It's just, it's been haunting me. So there's a cancer drug that was created in 1973 Mm -hmm. in the United States that drug is selling for $38,000 per shot. In the UK, it's $260. Rampant, grotesque, price gouging, big pharma being absolute mafia shark criminals. Right. And you know how many articles I've seen on that? One. Right. Maybe, there, how kind, many
1: of these were there?
0: 1,542. I saw cool. one article on that. 1,542 on the most obvious bullshit story of all time. And look, the fact of the matter is, these news outlets, I don't know if they believe it or not, but they want clicks and it's a sexy story, right? Oh my God, your kid's gonna get fucking fentanyl poisoning, bro, so they go with that. But the crazy thing is, and this is why I bring up the drug example too, that's also kind of a sexy story. That's also, you know, attention grabbing, giant headline, massive scandal, and it gets no coverage. This drives me mad. It drives me crazy. And this is why, I mean, I should be thanking them, right? Because this is why outlets like ours end up doing well, even with right. all the algorithmic suppression and whatnot. People just find, oh, hey, these people look like they're talking about real shit. Right. But like, it this is this is maddening. Like, there's no logic. It's all about the clicks. It's it's the most obvious fear-mongering in the world. It, local I'm, news is really bad about this sort of shit. Oh my God. Like, you know these, what else they're like, bad about? Crime. They will find a crime Mm -hmm. And talk about it like it's the end of the world. And you could go through a period where it's the same number of crimes and the same nature of the crimes. And if they just don't cover it that much, then there wouldn't be this narrative of like, oh, crime is on the rise and everybody's going to die. And so that helps also shape a narrative. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: but they're classic like, you must watch this segment before you pack your kids lunch tomorrow or whatever they, yeah. They love that sort of shit. And will there be any accountability? Will anyone, after the fact, after they ran their 1,500 stories on the Rainbow Fentanyl, will they come back and be like, you know what, guys? We were wrong. There was no Rainbow Rainbow Fentanyl. We're all good. Sorry that we freaked you out. No. Of course not. They'll just never say a word about it again until next Halloween when they do the same shit again.
0: Literally none of them (laughs) have followed up. None of them have followed of course, up. Of course. And then they yeah. have, you know, and then, the, the, you know, these are the same outlets that would, you know, go after guys like Alex Jones because Alex Jones has never done a fucking correction segment in his entire goddamn life. And it's like, yeah, but you guys kind of suck too in a different way, in a less egregious way, but right. you guys fucking suck in less, too. Less like right?
1: outrageously clear way.
0: Yeah, you're not committed to the truth because if you were- It's more vicious
1: when it's less uh, obvious too.
0: Exactly, because, you know, this is something I could easily, I mean, I, I don't want to throw my mom under the bus, she didn't say anything to me about this, but there's a story <laughs> where I could see her saying like, oh, did you see did the you thing see this? about the thing? it's yeah. just like, no, we we have a way in this country of being misled by media ghouls who will divert your attention in the same way that like politicians use the culture war mm-hmm. to, to just get everybody's attention away from the shit that actually matters and the stuff that's actually happening and how yeah. they're getting screwed in their everyday life by their fucking boss. They just divert your attention with like, oh, j- big-titted woodshop teacher, trans person, look out! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, like right. that's like that's what they're doing, <laughs> yeah. right? Totally. And it's just it's it's infuriating, especially <laughs> given the context of, like I said, a story like that drug. And by yeah. the way, how many drugs are there like that in this country? Right. Where the markup in the U.S. is preposterous. I mean, yeah. Insulin, for example, goes for three hundred dollars a vial here in Canada. It's thirty. That's just one another example, one example. That's right. fucking egregious. A
1: crucial one. That's egregious. Too. So many people's lives depend on
0: it. Now, where are the 1,542 articles within a two-month time span on that, which right. is a fucking national scandal and a crisis?
1: Well, I've got another media story here for you. Fox News is pushing the Rainbow Fentanyl thing hard. And, I mean, they are, like, the king of using these, like, stupid cultural distraction issues, the big-titty woodshop teacher and its equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. right? so um there was apparently a study a single study that came out that suggested cats are good for stress relief for stressed out college students and uh the folks over at fox completely freaked out over the study take a listen
2: this is just another example of how uh we are raising snowflakes (laughs) because i mean if you honestly can't make it in college then just drop out I mean, well, although I know a lot of people want to take advantage of the freebies, but just drop out anyway. Do us all a favor. I don't think animal rights activists would be too proud of this either. I wouldn't want any college student manhandling my cat. <laughs> yeah, but Kaylee, I don't think these
1: kids need cats. I think they need discipline. I think they need a slap yep. in the face because these are the same <laughs> oh kids that get a professor fired for being too hard on their way to medical Great school. Point. These are kids that can't even listen to a conservative viewpoint. They shout out speakers. They chase them off campus. But a cat will make everything better. Guess what? That doesn't work in the real world. Yeah, you're talking about my my (laughs) professor that I love so much. Back at (laughs) NYU. 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 Yes. No, I remember uh, on one of my campuses getting a note that there would be dogs and puppies for us uh, to soothe (laughs) us during exam (laughs) time. And I thought, is this real? (laughs) I mean, no. What a distraction for kids who don't want to study. Number one. (laughs) Number two, I don't need to be coddling a puppy. I need my, you know, organic chemistry book if I'm, you know, in in pre-med here. This is insanity. Give me a cup of coffee, a cookie, and a stack of books, mm-hmm. and I'm set. I don't need a puppy in my lap to study for exams. <laughs> I don't think these kids need cats. I think they need a slap in the face is what she said. The thing I like about this segment is it's so obvious that they are not actually outraged, that they don't give a shit about this. Like, it's so clear they're just putting on the show that they think that their audience wants to see.
0: Yes, it is the the overreaching of the narrative that they've now hammered away on for years which is
1: the snowflake college kid
0: wokeness has gone too far bro everybody's overly woke everybody's so sensitive everybody's politically correct these are snowflake college kids this generation is full of weak bitches bro they don't even know how to work bro they don't even know how to work bro and all like it was the most benign study of all time which by the way kind of states the obvious that like if you have a pet and you like it and you pet it it's, it's going to help you. relieve your stress. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and
1: I like that they don't even have an example of a college like employing this. It's just a study, you know? Yeah. It's just like a theoretical, some research. And they're like, "Ah, yeah, this is destroying America and these kids need to be slapped.
0: Yeah, because and, and mm-hmm. I made this point the other day that we're at the point and I would argue it's been like this for at least a year now, but we're at the point where the dogmatism of the anti-woke people is just as fucking cringe Mm -hmm, and over the top as the super woke people. Yes, Because they've they've turned it into a fundamentalist religion where it's like, anything that suits our narrative, we're going to run with it. Oh yeah? You like petting cats? Pussy. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) Why? How the fucking... This this
1: wasn't even like an example of someone liking petting cats. It was research. Yeah,
0: benign study. (laughs) Research science. Me, I like to kill cats, bro. That's what I like to do. I like to kill them and eat them. When I'm naked in the jungle doing war games. That's what I do. I'm not a bitch, bro.
1: It is total, like, two sides of the same coin kind of a thing. Yeah. It has become a sort of religion on the right, the anti-woke thing. And they they work into everything. Everything. Like, everything. you know, uh, the problem with the military, the problem with the war in Ukraine, the problem—everything— comes back to, like, wokeness.
0: Well, that's what... I I don't know if you remember, there was that uh, Jordan Peterson video where he got a lot of backlash even from his own fans talking about the war in Russia and Ukraine. And his argument was basically like, Russia's standing up to the woke West. It's like... (laughs) Did you really oh shoehorn the issue of wokeness into fucking a gigantic war, a geopolitical nightmare that's very complex and nuanced and involves NATO and the West and, you know, natural resources because there was natural gas found off the coast of Crimea and like all these things? Just like, nope, sh- woke. Wokeness. Woke back. That's, that's woke the bad. thing. He's standing up to the crazy wow. pro trans Western people. They don't even think boys are boys and girls are girls, bro. This shit is crazy. Of course he was going to invade. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this, I, this is... had yeah, to invade Ukraine to fight the wokeness. <sighs> I,
0: by the way, there was one point in that where I couldn't help but giggle a little bit. Um, the first woman who was talking yeah. said, and I quote, I wouldn't want any college student handling my cat.
1: Manhandling my cat. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that.
0: Horny wine mom check. Horny <laughs> wine mom check. <laughs> I'm sure that's all she wants As a college student <laughs> handling her cat. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so Fox News, hilariously comical, mm-hmm. just a total that. joke. And uh, we've reached peak anti-wokeness, in my opinion. Thanks. think so. I think there will be a slowly tapering down and away from... Because even if you look at like the anti-woke YouTube channels, they're using screenshots of like characters from 2016. Yeah. Like that feminist with the red hair, like the person who's screaming after Trump got elected. Like they have to go all the way back to then to find like, this kind of fits our narrative. Let's put it into a video. It's totally unrelated.
1: I mean, you can, to, to tie this into the midterms, you can also see like they're not leaning into their wokeness rhetoric in terms of the ads they're serving up to the population. Again, it's like crime. Inflation. Inflation. So right. even they're like, you know, the thing they dabbled with in the Glenn Youngkin race, the like critical race theory yeah, gender already. ideology, whatever the fuck that means with uh, Ron DeSantis or whatever. They pushed that to the side. Yeah, they've. So I think you might be right about that. Not that it couldn't have a resurgence. Not that they're obviously not still totally obsessed with it over on Fox News. But at least Republican elites have some notion that this is not the most salient case for them to make to the public. Definitely. All right, guys. Very excited to talk to you, Rana Faruhar, author of new book, Homecoming, um, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. She's the associate editor at the Financial Times, and she joins us now. Rana, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So... um, I'd love for you just to start, you know laying out the thesis of your book, which I think ultimately is a hopeful thesis. but you make a case that uh, the era of kind of you know unfettered globalization or the neoliberal era is coming to a close, and you also make a case the best possible case for what could come after. so just in sort of you know top line, sketch that out for us,
2: yeah, absolutely. well, again, thanks for having me um. My my thesis is hopeful, and you know, oftentimes when we talk about globalization and more particularly deglobalization, which is you know kind of what we're going through right now, it's scary. You know, there's chaos, there's bumps, war in Ukraine, decoupling with China. People get worried about all this, but ultimately, we have to get back to a better balance between global and local because the pendulum has just swung too far. If you look at the last forty years, and I would start with the Reagan Thatcher revolution. Um, capital is unleashed globally. Then under the Clinton administration, you get a lot of trade deals being cut. Trade is unleashed globally. You know, the idea, this this Washington consensus idea, very neoliberal, and by that I mean, um, you know, sort of pro-corporate trickle down, this idea that capital, money, goods, people were all going to be able to flow easily around the world wherever they wanted to, and more importantly, that they were always gonna end up where it was most productive for everyone. That created a lot of global wealth, but guess where it went? Uh, mostly to the top 1% of the population, um, multinational companies, and the Chinese state, because that was part of the bargain. The West was sending cheap capital to China, and we were getting cheap labor in return. The problem is, and you know, I lived this, this story growing up in the rural Midwest, in the eighties and nineties, we hollowed out our entire industrial base. We allowed huge consolidation of our agricultural systems. And basically we made it impossible for large swaths of people to have a middle-class life. Um, I want to just, you know, when you talk about economics, you talk a lot about data points and ideas, it can get a little wonky, but I want to share with you actually a human story that I think kind of encapsulates the Faustian bargain that we made when I was researching this book. I went down to Washington um, and had a long interview with the now late labor leader, Richard Trumka, who used to be the president of the AFL-CIO. He passed away. Wonderful man. Um, Former coal miner from Pennsylvania, um, became a lawyer and then a labor leader. I was talking to him about what were the conversations that you were having with policymakers, particularly in the 1990s, about how global trade was going to work for American workers. And he said, Someone from the Clinton administration, who shall remain nameless, uh, came to him and said, look, we know this is going to hurt U.S. workers, U.S. labor, um, but don't worry. Eventually, wages are going to level out around the world. Chinese wages are going to rise. In the meantime, we're going to get a lot of cheap stuff at Walmart. And don't you worry. It's it's all going to be fine in the end. And Trump said, well, how long is that going to take? And this policymaker said three to five generations. Three to five generations, that is a hundred years in the lives of the communities that we know now are hollowed out. Uh, This has bred not only a stagnant economy, but more extreme politics on both ends of the spectrum. Um, My thesis is we're actually heading to a better place now. There are gonna be bumps and we can tease some of that out, but economic pendulums always shift. And when they get too extreme in one direction, They start to shift back. And that's where we are now. We're going to go to a place, slowly but surely, where we have a more balanced economy. We have some manufacturing. We have some services. We kind of realize that not everybody in this country can be a banker or a software developer. And we start to build up local communities rather than just 12 cities and a lot of rich people on the coasts.
0: So help me understand the mechanics of how we're going to unwind this, because... um yeah. I, I, I struggle conceptualizing it. And this is actually a debate Crystal and I have had multiple times. Ongoing. Yeah, maybe. it is. It's a very <laughs> ongoing debate. I'm very skeptical awesome. that we're coming to the end of the neoliberal era. And if you want in a little bit, I could you know lay out why I'm skeptical. But help me understand, like, what's yeah. going to be the genesis, which then leads to the consensus in the elite class that we can't keep doing this anymore. And we have to sort of unwind and redevelop American manufacturing.
2: Yeah, so I, I love that question. I also love that you guys are having these wonky ongoing debates. I'm glad I'm not the <laughs> only one that's doing that. <laughs> um, okay, so l- to be sure, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this, the neoliberals are not going to die easily. Um, you know, you hear them out there in the ether right now saying, oh, we've got to get back to lower prices. Oh, you know, we have to we have to think about the consumer. Well, Here's what's happening. Regardless of what neoliberals want, um, globalization, neoliberal globalization, as we have known it in the last half century, has been built on three things. Cheap capital from the U.S., cheap labor from Asia, and cheap energy, in particular, from Russia going into Europe. All three of those things are changing now, right? So when I say cheap capital, what I'm talking about is 40 years of falling interest rates, And this is a this is a really interesting point. And sometimes um, progressives tend to get a little little caught up. And, you know, we like low interest rates on the one hand because it makes it easier for working people. But ultimately, what low interest rates do over that long of a time, 40 years, is they allow companies to essentially take on tons and tons of debt. They allow all those stock buybacks that, you know, raise Wall Street prices but don't actually do anything on Main Street. So they create this highly financialized, highly leveraged economy that's really, really risky. In the meantime, they really don't change the story on Main Street. It's not about investing in workers. It's not about investing in factories. It's about making Wall Street richer. That was actually the topic of my first book, so I could geek out on that forever. But so that is now ending. We see rates are going up because the Biden administration is trying to fight inflation. At the same time, the whole cheap a wage thing in Asia is pretty much tapped out. And it's interesting because even before COVID, even before the war in Ukraine, when people really began to see, oh gosh, these supposedly efficient, very monopolized supply chains, maybe not so great in the middle of a war or a pandemic, um, those were already starting to change actually years before because manufacturers were realizing, gosh, you know, it may not make sense with high energy prices, with the carbon emission load to tote things all the way from the South China Seas um, back to the U.S. or Europe. So certain industries like uh, textiles, for example, or furniture were already starting to decouple and to regionalize. And that was happening before geopolitics put all this on steroids. So at the same time, China in 2015, 15, before Trump took office, this is very important because we often think about the trade war between the US and China as being, you know, all Trump's fault. Before, a year before he took office, China announced a Made in China 2025 program, which said, we want to be totally independent from Western supply chains by 2025. We want to have our own technology. We want to produce and consume regionally, which If you put aside any nationalism and any sort of scary Xi Jinping politics, it actually kind of makes sense because hubbing production and consumption more locally is better for the climate. It allows more innovation. It allows a greater economic diversity, which is good for wages. So so that's happening. China's going that direction, whether we want it to or not. Third point, this whole, oh, let's Germany, let's get all our energy from Russia. That's going to be easy and great. That's over. So, you know, the cheap wage, cheap capital, cheap energy bargain that allowed neoliberal globalization to happen is just done, whether the neoliberals like it or not.
1: Fit this into the Biden era and how Biden's policy actions fit into your thesis, because You know, I'm kind of of two minds of it. Uh, Certain areas, you know, I've been very laudatory. uh, Laudatory, is that how you say that? Laudatory. Yeah, there you go. Um, You know, there have been Made in America provisions, but then you kind of dig into it, and it doesn't really have the teeth or go as far as you want it to. There have been some, you know, uh, verbal encouraging of unionization, but no real big policy change. He does have an NLRB that is actually, you know, pro-worker or at least neutral. That's a positive, but in terms of Policy change, not really much. Um, you look at the Inflation Reduction Act. You see, OK, there's like some investments in uh, green future and in having that manufacturing happening on our shores. But it's not really the size of the package. really not enough in terms of where we need to go. So how do you look at all of these various policy steps? And how do you an- analyze how significant and meaningful they ultimately are?
2: So it's a great question. Um, you know, to step back, just think about all the things that you just laid out. We can always, as progressives, we can always say, "Gosh, there should have been more done." But think about it. You've just laid out probably the most pro-worker agenda we've seen since FDR. Correct. Um, and this, and this is something that has been accomplished with the polarized politics that we have now, and crucially with an existential um, conflict, I would say, within the Democratic Party itself. So, you know, to go back to the earlier point, neoliberals aren't aren't dying easily, and there's plenty of them in the Democratic Party. And what I see, um, even in the White House right now, is you've got this sort of tug, this tug of war between progressives and pro-labor Democrats who say, look, we've got to have a more balanced economy. We've got to have a better balance between global markets and national interests because you have a huge swap of the voting public that simply feel that a lot of technocrats of either party on the coasts, um, you know, have made decisions that are not necessarily in their interest. At the same time, you have some of the old guard, you have, you know, Democrats that really bought into that whole consumer prices. As long as they're low, no problem. As long as share prices are high, no problem. And that push pull is happening right now. Now, I think the president, who, by the way, like has a bust of Cesar Chavez in his office, (laughs) that's like pretty good sign that you're pro labor. Um, I think his heart is in the right place. I also think that when we go through these seismic shifts, and I believe the shift we're going through from the neoliberal globalized era to a more Localized, regionalized, better balance of global and local—that pendulum shift—that's a once-in-a-lifetime shift. And typically, what happens is you see one leader begin to make these changes, and then oftentimes it might take a second administration, even a third administration, to see those changes come to fruition. I'm watching the midterms. I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm worried that we're we're that the inflation situation right now is making people get into a panic about oh my god you know, uh, Biden's doing a terrible job, we have to go back to the status quo, we're gonna vote Republican. Folks, (laughs) just look at the UK. If you think a tax cut is gonna put us in a better uh, position, if you think that's gonna solve all the problems at the moment, look at what just happened in the UK. That was the end of trickle down. It blows up your economy and it blows up your politics. We have to, in this country, and I, I, I hope that the Biden administration can start to communicate this better, we have to think beyond the quarter. We have to think beyond even the year. We are in competition with countries that are thinking for 50 years. We've got to get a little longer term in this country.
0: So uh, I'll give you a little bit of pushback and I'll give you my theory okay. on where we're at in the neoliberal era. But in terms of the Biden thing, I'll just say <laughs> it real quick. We, we mostly agree on the Biden thing. I guess the only area where we disagree is more his intentions than anything else because I do view mm. him as an old school status quo manager, neoliberal. This is a guy who supported NAFTA and all these free trade agreements. And the political reality on the ground has shifted underneath him. And I think he's following that to, to one extent or another. I mean, I think he's the best president policy-wise of my lifetime. And it's not even close. I think he's far surpassed Obama already with a lot of the stuff that he's done. But that's also, it's also like being the tallest kid in kindergarten, if you ask me. I mean, these people all pale <laughs> in comparison. Right to like FDR, you know, and even maybe Lyndon B. Johnson. But um, okay. so so here's the pushback. There was a report that just came out from Americans for Tax Fairness, and they looked at the four hundred and sixty five, the four hundred sixty five billionaires and what they did uh, with their money in in the midterms. And they spent a grand total of eight hundred and eighty one million dollars in 2022. Now, prior to Citizens United, they spent thirty two million. So we're seeing this colossal explosion. And really, yes. it's been since the late 1970s and onward, we've we've seen this, you know, introduction of money in politics, money being viewed as free speech and sort of slowly but surely dismantling all the rules and regulations around money in politics. And so my pushback to your theory is, it's the old thing, follow the money. And right now, capital controls everything. And that's why we have a Republican Party that's beholden to capital, you know, they talk about culture war bullshit all the time, but really they're, they're functionally there yes. to be beholden to capital. But then the Democrats as well, uh, you know, they're better than the Republicans and their status quo managers. So they'll do some tweaks around the edges that are better than nothing, like Biden with his student loan debt reduction among, you know, many other things, 15% yeah. corporate minimum tax rate, which it was in the IRA. But I guess my fear is, uh, as long as you have this colossal amount of billionaire money, corporate money in our politics, then, they will always try to uphold this neoliberal era because it's been great for them. They have record profits right now and and our country is imploding, but they don't care. And so the only thing that I could see us getting out of it, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is if if you phrase like onshoring jobs and bringing back American manufacturing as a national security concern that we need to do to break free of China and Russia. But even then, I'm afraid that like, you know, capital will say, yeah, we could make our microchips here, and with the Chips Act, we're you know starting to go down that path. But we could also just you know get the skill and expertise to like Bangladesh or some shit, and have them make it there, and still have the cheap labor, and still care first and foremost about profits. So, what do you think of all that?
2: There's so much there. Um, all right, let me let me start. I'm going to give you <laughs> I'm going to give you a little pushback on Biden as a neoliberal. I think Biden is pre-neoliberal. <laughs> He's like he was there before that. <laughs> And I think, you know, yes, he was, you know, uh, certainly on board with some with some trade stuff. But this is Grant and Joe. I mean, I I really think that at this point and by the way, he was he has always been the Democrat that's had the tight, you know, conventional Democrat that's had the tightest relationship with labor. I think his heart is totally in the right place about where to go now. Um, I totally hear you about um the money culture. And, you know, something I was just thinking as you were talking, I've just, you know, I just came out with my third book, Homecoming, but I'm already thinking about my fourth one. And maybe it will be called Corporations Are Not People, because <laughs> they're not. And this is something I'm really digging into. The legal structures that have in this country over 40 years, actually longer, in fact, um, that have allowed companies to essentially manipulate um, uh, their their personhood in the public sphere to be incredibly opaque, to keep almost everything that they're doing under wraps, um, to to and now to be able to have so much money corrupting our politics. It, we have an American oligarchy, essentially, and we have a decision right now about whether we're going to become Brazil or whether we're going to look A little bit more like a benign version of Germany, where you've got a a better balance of, you know, economy based just on asset wealth and an economy based on wages that are actually going up and jobs that are doing uh, productive things for society, making things as opposed to just moving money around. But how are we going to get there? Great points. So, again, the Biden administration is not a silver bullet But I look at a couple of of real pivot points that I think if we were to come back in 20 years, and I hope we all will, and do this podcast again, we will say, wow, that was a turning point. And one of those turning points was in July of 2021, when Biden put out an executive order. Uh, It didn't get a lot of pickup, interestingly, I think because everyone, again, in the media is so darn short term, but it basically said, The era of Milton Friedman Chicago School economics is over. Consumer prices are not all that matters. In fact, they're not even the most important thing. Labor, communities, um, then consumers, companies, civic society, all working together. That's what matters. And he actually directed every department in government to start thinking that way, to start purchasing that way, to start making decisions that way. And little by little, not all at once, but little by little, you can see this happening. I would argue that there have been a m- massive changes in antitrust policy, for example, in this country. you know, We used to, one of the reasons we're, we're in this predicament that you talk about with the money culture is that a handful of giant companies have become so big and so powerful that they can simply blanket Washington with money and turn the dial on various bits of legislation. And you can look, actually, it's quite interesting. You know, Open Secrets has all this information Every time there's a big um, piece of legislation coming up about, say, the banking industry, you will see the finance industry go to number one in terms of lobbying. Same with pharma, same with big energy. It's just, you know, year on year. So they win that way. How did they get so big? How did they get so powerful? Well, we stopped enforcing antitrust rules in this country about 40 years ago, because the idea was as long as consumer prices were going down, everything was fine. But if you look at how our economy works today, it's not even, we're not even transacting often in dollars. We're transacting in data. I mean, when I go on Amazon to buy something, I'm supposedly getting this free service. I am being milked and mined for all kinds of information that is then being leveraged across all kinds of platforms. Lena Kahn, head of the FTC, is really trying to change that. She's part of this new Brandeis movement. And that refers to you know Brandeis, the big trust buster of the 1930s that said, you know what? It's not just prices that matter. Power matters. We, we live in a, a political economy. It's not just about the economy, stupid. It's about the politics, stupid. And companies have too much power. So I think we're at the beginning of seeing some real antitrust action coming not just from the FTC, but the DOJ, you know, Tim Wu in the White House. The SEC, Gary Gensler, is doing a fantastic job of really trying to bring a lot more of what's happening in the financial sphere out into the open But and here's where I think the rubber meets the road of of what you're talking about. We've got to have a whole of government strategy around all this. I'm talking about connecting the dots across trade, across commerce. I mean, you can see actually trade and commerce are a good way to look at that existential crisis in the Democratic um, Party right now. Commerce is understandably wanting to, and the national security folks, are wanting to cut new trade deals in Asia because, gosh, China's developing its own ecosystem. They may blockade Taiwan. What are we going to do? We've got to have new trading partners. But Catherine Tai at Trade, who's a very labor-centric person, is saying, well, Okay, but we're not going to do what we did in the '90s and in the 90s. We're not going to just sign deals, um, you know, with who knows what labor standards or environmental standards, and then have even a, now a white collar outsourcing of digital workers somehow, you know, floating into Asia. We're just not going to do that. So that's where we are right now. We are hashing out what this new post neoliberal, post globalized, more international system of balancing the needs with markets and nation-states. What's uh, what's that going to look like? It's going to take years, if not decades. Well, and the Republican Party
1: is going to have a say in it, too. Um, And, you know, these eras are like the New Deal era and then the neoliberal era are defined more by their consensus between the parties than they are by their differences, even though, obviously, you know, we talk a lot about, the media talks a lot about, like, the cultural differences in particular. But what really makes the eras is the places where the two parties agree. So when you have, you know, I would actually put Biden in um, a sort of as a Carter like figure, which I know has a lot of negative connotations, (laughs) which I don't necessarily (laughs) mean. But Carter was this transitional figure. He has one foot in the New Deal era. He has one foot in the neoliberal era. Then you have Reagan come in and, you know, assert from the Republican side, obviously, like Reagan-Thatcher revolution, as you put it. But when the era really becomes consolidated is when Bill Clinton and his administration leans all the way in. So you can see with Biden, him being in this kind of like, Carter-like transitional zone, um, Republicans, you know, are very likely to take at least one and likely, I would say at this point, both chambers in the midterms. It's entirely possible that you have Trump or some other Trump-like figure um, ascending back to the presidency. I mean, all of that is very much up in the air right now. So where is the Republican Party in terms of how they're thinking of these things? Because Trump, and I think you talk about this in the book, raised a lot of important questions about these trade deals, you know, put a lot of uh, important, like, ideas and concepts on the table. But then when he's president, his signature accomplishment is like the
0: George W. Bush tax cuts the on the platonic ideal yeah. of yeah. neoliberalism
1: <laughs> is like, let me give away the store to the rich yes. people and try trickle down once again. So uh, you know, I hear yeah. lots of like working class rhetoric from Republicans, but they're all opposed still consistently to unions. Their plan for if they win in the midterms is like the same old, same old let's go cut taxes for the rich, let's go attack Social Security and Medicare. So where are they in this story?
2: So, um, very interesting questions, a few points to say there. You know, I look at Trump and all this as a little bit of a uh, a wild card. Um, I mean, he was a wild card in so many ways. He was kind of, in some ways to me, the ultimate neoliberal president, right? He was the apex of that because he's a complete con man. I mean, the guy's never made or done anything real in his life, but the, you know, if you think about the Herman Melville, like the classic con man, he takes one truth and embeds it in a welter of lies. And the one truth that Trump had, and I remember watching that first debate with Hillary and thinking, I was at a party on the Upper West Side, like a very blue place in America, um, Upper West Side of Manhattan, and everybody was like, oh, she's killing it. She's crushing it. And the NAFTA question came up. And if you watch those few seconds, it's about 30 seconds, one minute. I thought, oh, God, that's it. He's won because he hit that felt experience of you you Clinton-esque neoliberal Democrats sold out working people in America. You let the global markets dictate national uh, and domestic politics, and he was right. Now he, of course, didn't do anything to help that. As you say, it was just a tax boondoggle, and you can see corporate wealth went up dramatically. But Bob Lightheiser, his USTR, is a thoughtful person, and you know I, I'm a Lightheiser fan. I will say I'm a you know registered Democrat, of course, but. He's somebody that um, has been thinking deeply and realistically about global trade for some time. And I believe that there are now a group of Republicans, people like him, but also like a Marco Rubio, that kind of realize, all right, we were naive to think that, a, you know, an old, um, rich, uh, longstanding country like China with its own traditions and its own um, political economy, like it or not, that works for it. We were naive to think that this country was going to just kind of miraculously follow us um, into the Washington consensus and that they were going to become, you know, freer like us and, and and be just like us. I mean, I always thought that was naive. And so I think that there are a group of Republicans that are sort of pro, they wouldn't maybe call it industrial policy. I mean, even Brian Deese in the White House calls it industrial strategy. But they're pro, look, we have to think a little bit more about the balance between domestic policy and global trade agreements. And, you know, you can see Catherine Tai, the USTR now under Biden, actually kind of following a lot of the policies that that Lighthizer had. But I would argue that Democrats have now built on them with more domestic strategy at home. I think, and, and Eric, you mentioned this earlier, I think that national security concern which starts to overlap with domestic economic policy is going to be the connective tissue. You look at the CHIPS Act, totally bipartisan. Because, I mean, frankly, Democrat or Republican, did anybody ever think it was a good idea to have 92% of all of the high-end chips in the world, which is essentially the lifeblood of the modern economy, um, situated in Taiwan? Was that ever a good idea? No, we can all agree on that. We can all agree that there are probably five or 10 or 15 different supply chains. That we need to look at from a national security standpoint and rebuild to a certain extent capacity either at home or amongst allies. So I think that national security um, part of this is is really going to connect across the aisle. The one thing I'm I'm hoping that we can get more connection about um, is energy strategy. I would have actually liked to have seen Biden at the at the beginning of the Ukraine war coming out and saying, "Look." We're going to we're going to pump more. We're going to we're going to fix this problem for Europe. But we've got a five year window and we are going to get on page the US and the EU with some climate transition policies and an industrial policy around clean uh, clean batteries, around green tech. You know, that is low hanging fruit. And again, I think that could be bipartisan, um, but that we're not there yet.
0: So on the on the, like the point about Marco Rubio and like the Josh Hawley types and the fact that in rhetoric they're breaking from the traditional you know Reagan slash Republican uh, you know agenda, I feel like that builds. I wouldn't my- put them in the
2: same camp, by the way, but
0: okay, fair enough. Then I'll just say Marco Rubio. But I feel like that sort of bolsters my argument in a sense because if you look at what Rubio's actually saying, and you covered this, Crystal, he 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 framed it as you know. Uh, maybe in favor, maybe not in favor of the Amazon union effort, but it's because Amazon is a woke corporation. And so like in this one instance, yeah, maybe unions are good. But in terms of like trade policy, I I see standard operating procedure, even insofar as we're talking about the Chips Act, you know, it's something I I support the idea of bringing back American manufacturing, especially for microchips. But, you know, Bernie was sounding the alarm at the time about that legislation, basically saying there are loopholes in this thing that you could drive a Mack truck through. Like we need more assurances that... Uh, people need to get paid well. They need to be union jobs. You need to make sure that there There were no labor standards. There were no labor standards in it. And the other thing is we're afraid maybe what'll happen here is the same thing that happened with Donald Trump, with what was that, the name of that plant, the Foxconn factory, what was it in in Wisconsin? He he did this whole thing of, yeah, we're bringing it back. And then nothing fucking came of it. And so I feel like I agree that when it comes to rhetoric, when it comes to PR, when it comes to how you campaign, we are entering a new era in the sense that the stuff that's popular isn't the era of big government is over anymore. The stuff that's popular is like, maybe the government should help out. Maybe we should change the rules yeah. of the system. But in terms of the actual policy, it does seem very much like a continuation of the status quo or um, you know something like Biden's policy uh, with, with the CHIPS Act where it's like, yeah, it's a step in the right direction, but this could all just crash and burn because the details are not really that great.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a, these, are, these are great questions. And I guess it's a matter of how hard and fast are you going to stay um, to your ideology you know, at a time when we've got to have some more capacity in this country. I mean, I am truly worried. I, I sit for my sins. I sit in supply chain conferences all the time. And mm-hmm. I am truly worried that if there were to be a Chinese action in Taiwan tomorrow, we would just be screwed. Yeah. I mean, we don't. We do not know <clears throat> where our supply chain is, and that goes back to this point that I made earlier about how companies have been able to leverage trademark law, patent law, to basically obfuscate. And in some cases, they've outsourced so much that they don't even know their own secret sauce. You know, <clears throat> I'm talking to a number of investors, kind of pro um, pro worker, pro domestic um, policy investors. That are actually working with companies in the U.S. now to try and figure out, you know, how did we make this product 40 years ago? Because we've forgotten. So that's where we are right now. And so I think that a little bit of give in order to get that CHIPS Act done, I was okay with that, but I totally take your point that this paradigm cannot become every industry in this country lining up for a handout from Washington. Because if you look, at the pie right now, the overall economic pie, it is just wildly skewed towards the private sector. You know, it, even with the market uh, correction recently, the private sector still has the re, pretty close to its highest uh, share of the overall economic pie relative to labor or the public sector in the post-war era, and that just can't stand. Um, but How are we going to get there? Well, you know, I think it's it's going to a lot's going to depend, frankly, um, on the midterms, on whether the Democrats can 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 hold any kind of strength. I mean, if if we get a Republican sweep, forget it. We're kind of done, except for executive orders. We're kind of done for the next two years. But honestly, I think millennial voters, younger voters are simply going to shift this pendulum. And if you look at covid, I mean, I've been fascinated, actually, by what covid has exposed about how many of us frankly feel about corporations which is they suck <laughs> you know we don't want to work for them uh, apologies to all of my employers but you know uh, we we know we're being fleeced um you know we know we don't have all the information i mean th- these tra- these um this new law that's been passed recently in new york the salary transparency law it's amazing if you think about it it's amazing that in a, in a market system where Adam Smith, father of modern capitalism, would have said that you needed three things to have a functioning market, equal access to information, a shared understanding of what is being transaction, tra- transacted, you know, bought and sold um, or agreed upon, and a shared moral framework. We don't have any of that as workers when we're negotiating with companies. I don't have that when I'm negotiating um, you know, with Amazon, when I'm making a purchase. The U.S. and China don't have that. We have a market system that is fundamentally broken. And I think younger voters realize that. And here's the rub. They don't have assets to protect. The boomers have all the wealth. And so honestly, I mean, even as somebody that is, I own a house, I have stock. I welcome the day when younger people outnumber boomers and Gen Xers like me and start voting for uh, the things that are actually in everyone's interest. I mean, it is about time. Let me
1: ask you a little bit more on the China front, because this is a piece that um, you have a lot of depth of knowledge in. And, um, you know, you talked about the fact that the the people who are ready to go to war with China, of which there is a significant contingent in Washington, are out of their fucking minds, number one, um, yeah. because of how, interde- like, you know, we were able to basically like cut Russia off and it wasn't that big a deal, although that has also caused pain. That is nothing compared to, you know, what it would do to us if we had. Any sort of significant sanction regime on China. That's number one. But I'm actually really curious for your take on if there are um, things that we could learn from the Chinese approach to their own yeah. economy. I mean, I definitely, you know, I don't want the authoritarianism. I don't want the, like, insanity yeah. of their COVID zero policy. I don't want any of that. I don't want the, you know, human <laughs> rights abuses of a Uyghur. I don't want any of that. But it does seem to me like they have been much more uh, strategic in terms of thinking about their economy. I think they've been much, um, they've had a much more values-focused approach to their own national interest that isn't just about, like, profit margins for, uh elites or large corporations. So talk to me a little bit about that piece.
2: Yeah. So you're encapsulating a very important argument that is not well understood in this country. I think, first of all, I agree with you. Definitely, you know, not a big fan of Xi Jinping, Um, you know, worried about Uyghur forced labor, Um, you know, don't want to be locked down in COVID zero. However, If you pull back from this regime, this this very nationalistic um, top-down regime, over the last few decades, the Chinese have actually been slowly but surely laying out a policy to take themselves as a country to a market system that is a little bit more shared in terms of prosperity, and you know Deng Xiaoping's you know famous quip about it's okay to get rich, some people are going to get rich first, but then later we need to make sure that there is real trickle down. They buy into that on a values basis, I would say. I mean, it's much more Confucian, you know. It's much more um, uh, Asian society in general is kind of a more collective society. That's both a strength and a weakness. Um, A few years ago, the Chinese laid out something called the Common Prosperity uh, Mm -hmm. Program, which basically, that was around the time that they started cracking down on a lot of very corrupt billionaires. They started putting a little more state control on some of the big tech companies. And from a market standpoint, you could see this as, oh, they're crushing private enterprise. But you can also see it as, you know what, they're checking their elites. And you could argue And some people do some very smart investors that I speak to are still long on China because of this, um, that they are ultimately going to do a better job in their own way, in ways that we might not adapt as a strategy, but but will nevertheless be successful in curbing their elites. And I think you could argue that the, the the competitiveness race globally may well be won by whichever country is best able to control its elites. Mm. Because as we can see, we're at a breaking point um, with politics because of elites run amok.
0: Yeah, so uh, on the China question, and tell me which part of this you disagree with, because, you know, you're you're an expert on this front. But when I look at it, I see basically a version of authoritarian state capitalism. But their success, I would credit to... (laughs) basically central planning being the secret sauce that they actually can have a clear goal and plan of this is in our national interest and now let's shoot towards that whereas again in the US i mean a national interest isn't i don't even think it's in the conversation really i really think that our government is this ragtag group of people cobbled together by their shared interest of being propped up by corporate america and just serving those donors effectively
2: um so I'm a little I guess I'm a little less cynical but maybe I've spent less time in Washington than you. But <laughs> a little less cynical about it, um, about about government but yeah it's all about getting the balance right you know I mean the the US is essentially run like a company you know I mean we that's how our state is run China is run um, like a collective you know and Beijing runs the collective And it is a very top-down economy. Now, you know, you can argue that that's been great in terms of getting everybody going in one direction. It's great in terms of speed. When they decide that something happens, it happens. I remember being in China once actually years ago and a a law came down or ruling came down about no more plastic bags. I'm telling you within 48 hours, you couldn't find a plastic bag in the entire country. I mean- they can do things quickly. That could well be a strength for them right now because the marching orders, if you're in China, the marching orders of where you wanna go right now are pretty clear. They need to build up their own semiconductor industry. They need to essentially start to bolster their existing supply chains, which are more robust frankly than America's because we outsourced everything to them and put consumer brands on it and start looping other countries into their orbit, that's arguably easier to carry out with top-down state control. Now, the counter-argument, and my fingers are crossed for this, I'm not sure if I fully believe it, but that decentralization is typically where innovation comes from. So if you look at uh, from an economic standpoint, where do new ideas come from? They, they tend to come from individuals, you know, academics working kind of by themselves, they have a eureka moment, or small companies. They tend to not come from bigger companies, particularly companies once they go public, that's it. They're incentivized to raise share prices and not to innovate. So in the US, we do still have a much more decentralized system that allows kind of ground up ideas to bubble up, particularly relative to Xi Jinping's regime. So some people would argue, Okay, we're, we're about to go through this major, um, uh, I won't call it an industrial revolution, but a sort of a data and industrial revolution where everything that you have <clears throat> in your phone is coming to business. That's what's going on technologically right now. It's called the Internet of Things. You know, the, the data world and the manufacturing world are now coming together. So you can have all kinds of smart systems. You know, my coffee cup is going to know when it needs to be refilled, um, jet planes have all kinds of sensors in the engine that can send data down to the people that are developing the um, the product, so they can tweak them in real time. 3D printing, I mean, you can now spray paint a house and they're doing this in Austin, Texas. I've seen it done in order to fix the housing crisis. You can spray paint a house in six days using very specialized concrete, $250,000 house that you'd wanna live in. All this stuff is very decentralized innovation and it's possible that this could be an advantage for the west in this sort of competitiveness game.
1: Right. But as you point out and um I would also recommend to people your great book Makers and Takers, that's not going to happen oh. as long as you have this like over-financialized system that basically only rewards like stock buybacks rather than innovation.
2: Yeah. Um I'm, yeah, and and I'm also worried if I can just say one thing and yeah. I'm like, you know, hello help policymakers everywhere. Private equity, which is really like that this is like you know public enemy number 1 right now these are the companies that come in and they 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 buy up great firms and they just fleece them and break them up for parts these companies are now eyeing middle market industrial firms in the US in the heartland family owned firms this is these are exactly the kind of companies we need right now to make this transition i'm talking about please, SEC, please, White House, let's like put down some rules that stop these companies from doing what they already did to the housing market.
1: Yeah, i hear, here to all of that. Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously, she was just uh, anointed president for life, um, surrounded himself with even more sort of hardcore loyalists, made a bunch of pronouncements about what uh, the next years in China are going to look like. What do you see? What did you read into that? What do you think that their next plans are going to look like?
2: Belt and road. So I think, uh, you know, what's that? Sorry. I said Belt and Road. One no? belt, one road. Yeah, belt, belt and Road for sure. So one Belt run, one Road for, for those that don't know is um, it's sort of China's a wonky way of recreating the Silk Route. So, you know, China back in the day, China and India, you know, until pretty recently were, were actually the largest and richest um, countries on the planet. Uh, the West eventually rose, you know, guns, germs and steel, all of that. Um, and so China has been through what they consider really since the opium wars, kind of, you know, decades, 100 years of, of of humiliation, and they want to get back to that position of global strength. And so they are recreating that Silk Route pattern through um, South Asia, through parts of Southern Europe, into the Middle East, even into parts of Africa. And they're doing that by offering up <clears throat> uh, money for infrastructure building. And so a lot of countries, even countries in Europe like Greece or Italy, have taken money from China for infrastructure building. And so they're kind of trying to create a little bit of a mercantilist um, path of, of trade partners and allies. Now, China is also, at the same time they've done this and been very proactive and smart, they're dealing with a massive debt crisis right now. So they are in the middle of. What is essentially their subprime crisis, their great financial crisis of 2008, where their entire real estate model is blowing up because they overbuilt and they they handed out too much money to provincial governments and provincial governments in China have until quite recently been incentivized to just prop up GDP numbers. So in the same way, in some ways that the U.S. incentivizes just companies bolstering share prices. Beijing incentivized local governments to just, you know, jack up GDP numbers, whatever you got to do. So there was a lot of bridges to nowhere, a lot of um, you know, empty office buildings. I actually, it's funny, a few years ago I was in Wuhan of all places, and I saw just these enormous swaths of land with these empty apartment buildings. And you're kind of scratching your head and thinking, well, yeah, China's gonna get richer, but is it gonna get that rich that fast? And the answer may be no, because Because the Chinese population is predicted to decline, in fact, because of the the one child policy. So you've got a debt crisis pushing from one end, you've got some demographic trouble from the other end, how are they going to manage that? It's unclear. At the same time, you've got big currency struggles. So they could sell off some US T bills, which could, you know, shake the US financial markets, but that would also shake the Chinese market. So there's this very, very tangled web of interests and decoupling that still has to happen. One thing I'm gonna be watching, Chinese New Year is um, January 22nd this year. And typically in Chinese New Year, this is their biggest holiday and all workers from around the country go home to be with their families. And so those provincial governments are gonna have to pay out a lot to those workers. That's gonna press on that debt crisis button. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens now. The last thing to say is Taiwan. Are we going to see are we going to see a blockade of Taiwan? Are we going to see the Chinese um, try and take back Taiwan? I think ultimately the Chinese will take back Taiwan. I think it's naive to think that they won't, but will they do it in the next couple of years? I'm a little bit skeptical because um, that would put them under so much pressure, so much financial pressure. And immediately, I think the US and Europe would come together and just completely pull out. I think even the Germans would be self-interested in that way and just pull out you know, and not worry about the hit to their manufacturing economy. The counter argument, though, is that China's weak right now economically. And so it may feel that um, they want to distract from what's happening at home, as autocrats often do, by creating a hot conflict elsewhere. Those are the two arguments.
0: So, Crystal, do you have any more questions on China or the book? Because if not, I want to ask her about the midterms.
1: Yes, I do have on the Taiwan piece. I actually want to dig in there a little bit more because part of why uh, we're so interested in Taiwan is because of the chips manufacturing capability. What is it, 90 percent of semiconductors made there or something astonishing? 92 of high end, yeah. 92 yeah. percent of the high end type. Um And we've just—the Biden administration has just uh, imposed, uh, what is it, export restrictions on chips technology to China. Now, part of their interest in Taiwan is, like, history and their view that this is rightly part of their country. And part of it is they have the same chips interest that we ultimately have. So are those actions—which I actually support and think are important— Will those that sort of push China's hand in terms of taking some action against Taiwan?
2: So a lot of people have have accused the Biden administration of, of just that of kind of waging economic warfare of of pushing China to the brink. I think that is total bunk. I really do, and I I especially it annoys me when it comes from the, from the Europeans who, frankly, are you know understandably worried. They're. Lo- literally sitting between two superpowers and they kind of don't want, in typical European fashion, don't want to make a decision, um, but are going to have to at some point. Um, I think that the real turning points, that there were two real turning points in the US-China relationship. I've already mentioned one in 2015, the Made in China 2025 program, which says, kind of said we're out, we're decoupling, you know, globalization, kind of done with it. We want to have our own ecosystem here at home people didn't report it that way. They kind of gave, I think they gave China a pass on that, but that's what it said. And you can read it. And when I will say to the Chinese, to their credit, once they put out a statement, they never veer from it vectorally. They just don't. So that was point number one. And then the second point was when Bob Lighthizer kind of pulled back the, the bullshit scrim on um, how U.S. businesses were doing—you um, know doing their business in China and said, look, this country is never going to come fully into the global trading system. And, you know, we're going to stop pretending that they are. And I think he was right to do that. I think the third soft, softer shift, and, and really it's more, it's not even a shift. It's more just like a, okay, let's really just stop this willful blindness that A, the WTO works, B, um, there's not a one world, two systems paradigm, which there clearly is, and C, that you know, the U.S. can just continue to be sort of uh, all about unfettered free global markets and not think about what's going on at home, that's what Biden did. And I believe that what he's doing now is long overdue, which is that he's saying, "Okay, we've already said, China has said it's decoupling. We've said that the trading system um, is no longer working in this way at a global level. Let's start taking the steps that we need to create more resiliency. And this is not economic warfare. This is about creating nodes of a resiliency of production of chips, which we should have been doing anyway. I think it's a great thing that we're producing more. I think it's a great thing that Europe's producing more. I think it's a great thing that China develops its own ecosystem. You know, And I think ultimately, that kind of regionalization is going to be better for everyone because it reduces the distance, the ideological distance between economic policy and between politics.
0: Am I good for a midterm question? Okay, just, just checking. I want to make sure we <laughs> mm-hmm. fl- flush out everything here. Um, all right, so there was a time not too long ago, five months ago, six months ago, whatever it is, where the Biden administration was all the way down at a 33% approval rating, and they weren't, doing much at the time. They were just kind of sitting around. And I remember on my show every day, yelling at them like, please, please do something. And uh, then we had a a string of uh, what I would call pretty solid policy victories. We of course had the executive orders on student loan debt reduction. We had uh, an executive order pardoning uh, the nonviolent weed offenders at the federal level, which will help thousands of people get jobs. and we also had, of course, the IRA. We had the Chips Act, and you know I could sit here and list off the various provisions of the, that legislation. But everybody's heard me done that enough. So you know, anyway, you get the gist of it. So then you saw, and of course, the Republican uh, Republican Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. So you saw this giant surge on the Democratic side, where you know when we had those special elections, uh, usually we're used to Republicans overperforming in the polls, but this was an instance where the Democrats actually overperformed in some polls. Now. That wasn't that long ago, but now we are sort of seeing another shift in the polls and the Republicans are surging back. And it looks to me just like they keep repeating inflation, 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 crime, crime, crime. When you look at uh, the polling on this, Americans say their top concern is the economy and inflation and gas prices and things of that nature. So perhaps the focus on like Roe versus Wade and democracy isn't landing. It isn't as salient as perhaps it was maybe three months ago or whatever. So... My question for you is, what do you think is going to happen in the midterms? Because the conventional wisdom now appears to be, you know, Republicans are going to take the Senate and they're going to take the House. Um, Do do you agree with that? Or do you think, actually, no, the Democrats will maybe hold the Senate? Or what do you think?
2: I'm worried. I'm worried. I mean, I don't like to say it, but I I was worried, frankly, when inflation started rising, because um, as much as someone like me can has the privilege, frankly, of, of being able to be comfortable and pull back and look at this 35,000 foot picture and say, okay, yeah, we're, the world is not flat, right? You know, we're going through a bumpy period. Inflation is going to be part of that in the short term, but I can see a future where we get to a better place. And actually you have higher, really higher wages and better jobs, which let's be honest, you know, Even with 5% wage inflation, that doesn't even come close to matching um, what's happening in housing and healthcare and education. So we've got to balance that out and that takes um, a longer economic strategy. If you're a working person, all you're thinking about is, wow, I can't buy meat anymore. I have to decide how far I can drive because I can't necessarily fuel my car the way I used to. that is so real. And what I would love is for the Democrats, and I have always thought this, to focus more on the economic framework. I, I, I love that there was a surge around Roe v. Wade, but the way to capture the biggest umbrella of people is to talk about how we live in an oligopoly right now. I mean, just look at what's happened with Twitter, <laughs> you know, look at what's happening with, you know, uh, some of the funders the like Peter Thiel, you know, just blanketing um, entire states with money. We are living in an American oligopoly and we have to claw back some of the money that is stuck in corporations that belongs to the commons. If you think about basically, you know, the majority of corporate wealth in this country lives in um in internet related things in intellectual property in data, who invented all that stuff, the government, <laughs> you know, taxpayer funded institutions, we have got a, a balance in this country that is just fundamentally off and I know that you know the Democrats focused a little bit on that last year with some of the price gouging stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see Biden just get out there with a much bolder message and and just call some of these corporate leaders on the carpet, really. I mean, it's just shameful, the the um, the fact that we're in the middle of a national crisis and, and companies are still trying to go back to this downsizing, cost-cutting, crush labor, don't invest model. And at the end of the day, they're going to hang themselves by their own rope. I mean, not to get too Marxian, but, you know. I am I, I think we're we're headed for a shift one way or the other.
1: Yeah, well, Tuesday's gonna be interesting and the uh, longer term shifts in the American public are gonna be interesting. Um, Rana, it's so great to talk to you guys. Please go and read her book, Homecoming, also read her other books. <laughs> I'm excited for the next one that you're talking about um, to come out as well. So thank you so much for spending some time with us. We're really grateful.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, our pleasure. Our pleasure. All right, that was Rana Faruhar and um look, all I have to say is I hope her theory is right. <laughs> the end of the neoliberal era. You know, but then there's another question of what comes next? Do we well, just cycle back to a new deal type era or is it something well, totally that's, different?
1: That's the part is I mean, she takes a very hopeful look at it and you know, sees these microtrends that I think are real and sees like the, the green shoots of something promising in the Biden administration, which I think is fair for all my critiques of the Biden administration. But you also have these very organized, you know, right wing authoritarian forces that would basically instead of shifting from what we have right now, it would be like, you know, plutocracy plus Social conservatism, police state, and yeah. social conservatism. Right. And um, you know, to me, those forces are more organized than the you know potential sort of new New Deal or whatever the the more left direction would be ultimately. So that's the fear.
0: Right. So in other words, what could come next is, well, I can't pay the bills, but at least we stuck it to the trans people. Right. Yeah. Like, right. At least we at
1: least we own the libs. Right. At least there's no immigrants. You know, I mean, it could look. Yeah, it could very easily look a lot like that.
0: Yeah, which is I mean, you know, you know my theory. It's just kind of like status quo continuation oscillating back and forth between the right putting the system on steroids and the left being the responsible status quo managers that helps people around the edges. Yeah. That's generally my my view.
1: Right. And we didn't get into this, but I mean, obviously like the culture war those issues are not, it's not that they're not real. It's not that they're not important, but they're also used as a way to like keep the focus on those while that underlying neoliberal consensus just continues. And I mean, we see that trend continuing.
0: What I'm amazed by is that in my estimation, the right has the losing position on the culture war issues, especially now that they're really leaning into their positions. And the Democrats still can't even defeat them on that front because, look, Overturning Roe versus Wade. Deeply, deeply unpopular. Again, these are people who cloak everything they do in the language of we believe in freedom and liberty. Well, apparently you don't when it comes to that. Okay, so that's one thing. 157 Republicans voting against gay marriage. 195 voting against a right to contraception. These are all things that are not popular. Now you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, along with Donald Trump in their stump speech now saying, we should put to death drug dealers. So this is all, you can't say you're pro-freedom and then say that. And the Democrats, to be fair, some of them have started putting this in their ads, like basically embracing the language of freedom. But that's the message. The message has to be on the culture culture war front and on the social issues front, it's we are the pro-freedom people. And then on the economic front, it has to be, we are the economic patriots. They are the economic royalists.
1: Yes. Agree. Um, I think a couple of things have happened in terms of the midterms. First of all, abortion has, you know, which was extremely visceral and extremely motivating right after Roe versus Wade was overturned. That has ebbed in terms of emotional intensity. Republicans have found um, their own cultural issue, which is working incredibly effectively, which is crime which Democrats have not really known how to deal with or known how to robot. I was just looking at Stanley Greenberg. I know how to deal with. Pollster. Yeah, I mean, I know you've been talking about it, so I'll I'll get your thoughts on it, but talking about how, you know, that's really uh, harming Democrats. And then they also completely seeded the issue of the economy, which is the number one issue overwhelmingly for people, cost of living. Can I put gas in my car? Can I put food on the table? Republicans don't have a plan to deal with that, but they're talking about it a lot more. You know, Democrats ran 10 times more ads on abortion than they did on the economy whatsoever, which, again, overwhelmingly, number one issue that people are talking about. So Republicans gave them every opportunity to succeed in this election. And I think Democrats have really blown their chances.
0: So on the crime front, there are two replies, which I think are very powerful. One of them the left isn't going to like, but I don't care because this is about winning, right? The first one is, oh, crime, crime, crime. Really? We're to blame for that? Biden is putting 100,000 more cops on the street. So your notion of like, oh, Democrats are for defund the police. First of all, it polls at 18%. Second of all, you could count the number of Democrats who ran at the federal level who actually campaigned on that on one hand. Yeah. So spare me this nonsense. You're just taking the absolute fringe and activist class and blowing that up as if that's a standard Democratic Party position. Again, Biden putting 100,000 more cops on the street. Now, people on his left might disagree with that and might argue with him on that. That's fine. All I'm saying is that is an effective rebuttal when talking about this issue. But the other rebuttal, which is something Tom Hartman has talked about. And then I saw, uh, you know, Obama mention this in a speech. and I think he's spot on is We're talking about, we just passed bipartisan gun reform the first time in however long, it's actually substantive money for red flag laws, uh, funding for school security, funding for mental health treatment. Nobody else was able to get this done. We were able to get this done. Now, beyond that, if you really want to keep the guns out of the hands of criminals, well, we're in favor of doing that. We want a universal background check. We want to ban high capacity magazines. There was some Republican judge, I want to say it was in Texas, but I'm not 100% sure, some red state or Republican judge um, who said, no, you have a right to a weapon, even if you're a convicted felon. There was a law that tried to keep it out of the hands of your They were like, no, you can't do that. So who's tough on crime and who's not? So that's my response on that one. And you're right, they're not... I don't see anything except from that one line from Obama. I don't see anything rebutting the crime narrative. And that's a problem, especially because it's working. But it, that that's not as important as the other thing you said, which is the economic stuff. Yeah, I would disagree with you in the sense that you said they completely seeded the issue of the economy. I still see some of them talking about Republicans are trying to cut Medicare. They're trying to cut Social Security. Um, and, it, you know, Biden has taken some solid shots on the issue of the economy, in my estimation, within okay, but, the past three speeches he gave, but what? it's not enough. Let me get but, to my agreement with you. It's uh, okay. not enough because, as you said, the ads are overwhelmingly more on the side of Roe versus Wade yeah. and not the well, economy, look at what and you don't have message discipline.
1: Look at what Biden closed with.
0: Yeah, it was the January same, 6th. And it was the same speech he gave not too long ago. Exactly. Yeah.
1: You already gave this speech. I yeah. mean, it just... Like saying it 10 more times, you may want that to be the issue that voters are going to the ballot box on, but ultimately they get to decide for their own selves. And if you actually believe in democracy, part of listening to democracy, doing democracy is listening to the voters telling you what they care about. So, all of that aside, if you read Rana's book, which again, I really recommend, it becomes very clear what a, you know, what a positive vision could look like. And, you know, as people on the left, like, we've thought a lot about this. But it's very simple. I mean, you have to have a resurgence of labor unions and worker organizing and put that at the center of your politics. You have to make the sort of care economy jobs that are um, increasingly, you know, the center of our economy You're talking about education, childcare, healthcare, You have to make those good jobs. Most of those are low paying, very difficult jobs with few protections. So that has to be like middle class, stable um, jobs. And you have to bring back some industrial capacity, both because of what it means for workers in the economy and also because of what it means for national security. Like that's the recipe. That's what it looks like. And that industrial piece has a, a significant like climate and green energy piece that's kind of the core of it. You know, Biden nibbling around the edges. I think she gives him a little too much credit. Um, I'm probably more negative on Biden than you are. But, you know, I think she really sees this as like paradigm shift. And yeah, this is, you know, you're, this you're is right. really totally moving things in a different direction. I'm like, well, he's nibbling around that. I see some good things. I think she's right on antitrust. There is a significant shift there. That matters a lot. But none of this is, to me, guaranteed. At all, it's there is no guarantee that after Biden comes someone who moves even more in that direction, and someone after that who goes who? even more in that direction. Who, who would all, do that? Exactly. I, that's, yeah, that's it's the all thing I struggle with.
0: Uncertain. What are we? Mayor Pete, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris. Who? Who are we talking about here? I mean, shit. I would, I would give Bernie Sanders ten more years off my life. If we can guarantee his ass getting in office, right? <laughs> like I would do that for the for the sake of the country. But like, who are we actually talking about here? Right. Kamala Harris. I mean, I look, I want I I want I want her to be right. I want you to be right because you're more bullish on the notion that, yeah, we're coming to the end of neoliberalism than I am. Well, but- and
1: part of what persuades me of that is I agree more with you that Biden, I mean, we've seen him 40 years in Washington and he's been a consummate neoliberal. I mean, he's on every trade deal. He's all in on that shit. Right. And so the fact that even someone who has been so in that mold of neoliberalism has been pushed to do some things that represent a bit of a shift, you know, to me, it's The person matters, but the era also really matters. And so I think that demonstrates there is a a difference. And, you know, going back to the the same old, same old, like, Clinton-type politics, I don't know that that the public would really tolerate that. I think they have to make some nods at least to doing things differently. But, yeah, the culture war is such an effective distraction when you have both parties committed to the status quo.
0: Yeah, I guess what I would say is the reason why I'm skeptical of her her line is that— I could imagine a scenario where like the best you get from a Democratic president is like, yeah, we somehow do find a way to magically get a public option in healthcare, Mm -hmm. but ain't gonna be fucking single payer, right? Like we do find a way to not cut social security and Medicare, but ain't gonna fucking expand it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. And and that's why perhaps I do give Biden a little more credit than you do, is because when he was down at a 33% approval rating, I was pulling my hair out on my show all day, every day, like fucking do something. And then I see this string of actual victories with real, tangible policy things that I could point to to say that student loan debt reduction, pardoning the the we defenders at the federal level, fifteen percent corporate minimum tax rate, six thousand dollar credit to buy an electric vehicle, uh, the PRO Act, onshoring three hundred fifty thousand manufacturing jobs. I mean, I can go on and on. There's a number of provisions. That my favorite one is the the Supreme Court overturned the EPA's ability to do environmental protection and then the Democrats slipped back in. Actually, we're gonna define carbon dioxide as a pollutant, so now the EPA is allowed to regulate carbon dioxide. That's fucking huge, right? So like, I give him credit for the things that he's done, and I think he's the best president of my lifetime, for sure. But, like, I guess my imagination is limited to, since we're in this neoliberal era and big money controls politics so much, the best I could see is basically somebody who's a little bit better than Biden. Mm. Ain't going to be no Lyndon B. Johnson, ain't going to be no FDR under the current system, unless and until we break the backs of the economic royalists and stop their control of the system.
1: Well, we're going to get one uh, judgment on all of this on Tuesday. And, you know, I think another one two years from then when we see whether... It's Biden, whether it's Trump, whether it's someone else entirely, all very uncertain.
0: Very true. All right, guys, uh, we love you very much. Do us a favor. Go ahead and subscribe on Substack. We'd really appreciate that. Five bucks a month gets you the video of every single uh, show, and it gets it to you a day early. Everybody else could listen for free. Just the the audio version on the show of the show a day later. Um, And yeah, that's it. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Peace.